0: welcome to episode 12 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello Ben.
1: Hi there Steve.
0: That was that was quite a late night phoning kind of hey there steve
1: was, was that <laughs> all right it was different <laughs> it
0: drew nice. me a little bit it was quite a seductive hello steve oh well, i'll try that
1: again then <laughs> no no that's
0: fine i, li- I liked it okay uh <laughs> for this episode we spoke to jason smith singer and guitarist from thrash metal outfit taranis we came across the band through a post on the Music from the East Zone Facebook page, which is linked to the East Anglian Music Archive. It's a hugely impressive and vast cultural history project which is working to document every band and musician from that region. Terranus were active for a few years during the late 80s, early 90s, and our conversation with Jason reveals a story, Ben, which initially sets up as a very typical and familiar one, doesn't
1: it? It does. It felt very much like um, a very real recounting of one person's real experience of making music across um, across their lifetime.
0: Yeah, uh, Jason's a very, he's very understated in his recollections, but I don't know about you, but I, I think there was some real poignancy throughout this conversation.
1: I think there was definitely something about, um, for Jason, about looking back with a sense of pride about the things that he'd done and mm. not holding on to regrets about the things that he might have done differently, and I—I I was definitely impressed by by that.
0: Yeah, me, me too. And there were moments. There were a few moments that sort of uh, stopped me uh, in my tracks a little bit, and 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 stuff that sort of harked back to the original idea for this podcast about that the commonality of the experience of being with. Uh, that formative experience of being with other musicians and finding a love of playing in a band, and those, and we sort of touched on that, that idea of those those first occasions when you lock in together with other musicians and how profound that is. And it's not something you ever, re- I don't think I've ever really spoken about that, but it's such an important moment.
1: <laughs> It is. It's something that we've carried throughout all our experiences, isn't it? And it was very clear from 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 Jason that that was a key thing, um, starting out and still is to this day. That the the making of music and the being with the people that that you do that with is central to a central reason to why you carry on uh, carry on making music.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's got nothing to do with success or any of that stuff it's about it's, it's the it's the human side of it I suppose
1: yeah and no, I think it show, I think it shows in this conversation with Jason and contrasting against some of the other um, interviews that we've done that uh, the range of people's experiences is is so vast isn't it so on a, on a professional level you might have someone like a one you know a one hit wonder to someone who's had a a lifetime of career in making music and then you know, for want of a better word, on the semi-professional level, you might have someone that writes one song and then that's it. Or someone goes on to write a thousand songs and never stops doing it, despite having, you know, despite a lack of success. You know, yeah. it, really, it really is that vast, isn't it?
0: It is. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the detour into the world of the tribute band, um, which is was an unexpected thing. So no, there was no clue that that was that was going to come up in our conversation.
1: It turned out to be quite a significant thing for it. It was really special to hear that, wasn't it? And um, yeah, it was like you say, it was completely unexpected. You know, I I think we could get a sense that um, um, Jason might have found the interview process a little bit daunting, but Mm. and then hearing that he'd fronted fronted a a heavy metal tribute band for you know for well for a considerable amount of time was um, it just showed a completely different side to him, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely, yeah, and it's worth kind of sitting with this conversation, and it is it is in a very low gear through throughout, and I like that about it in contrast with the song at the end, which is not in a low gear, it's thrash metal <laughs> and the story is full of uh the story is all about his love of that music and and where it's taken him,
1: yeah, for sure, and there was there was you know some questions around um well why why carry on? documenting and making music and there is there's a thing about well what's the purpose of recording songs that you've written and the music that you've made and you know for some people it's about leaving a historical document that they want the entire world to hear and for other people and maybe for Jason maybe Jason is one of these people it's more about the doing of it you know, the making. So the creativity is important in the making of something. And that might only be shared with the handful of people that you make it with and maybe your closest friends, but it's still a really centrally important thing for an individual to do.
0: Yeah, well said, that's spot on. Um, So there'll be a slightly longer gap between this episode and the next one, but we'll be bringing you episode 13 at the start of September. Thanks to everyone who's supported the show. Please do like and subscribe and pop up a juicy five-star review uh, if you get a chance. Have you, have you given me a five-star review yet? I'll,
1: I'll always give five. you a five-star review, of course. <laughs> yours, is <in> a, <laughs> yours is in a jiffy bag in the post. <laughs>
0: uh, okay, so uh, okay, over to our conversation with Jason Smith of Tarranis in episode 12 of Songs from the Padded Envelope.
2: Um, yeah, I'm Jason, and I was from a band called Terranis. Um, and I believe the song that I sent you was "Reoccurring Existence." It was, yeah. uh, and that was actually off our second demo.
0: Okay, what, why did you choose that in particular? That track in particular?
2: Um, probably because it was it was a lot better than the first demo. And uh, when you're going to put yourself out there, it's nice to have something that you're proud of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What was the uh, the sort of difference between the first demo and the
2: second demo? Um, I think it was just a lot of experience. The first demo we recorded um, after about four months of being together. And then the second demo we'd been together for about a year and a half. So, you know, we, we grew quite a lot within that time. And had you been doing a
1: lot of a lot of gigging between the between the two demos?
2: Yeah, yeah, there was um, a few uh, lineup changes as well within that, in that year and a half. Um, but yeah, we we just kept getting as many gigs as we could, and that's always difficult when you're playing original stuff.
0: Yeah, how what was this? What was the uh, um, the the makeup of the band then? And how did you how did you come together to to form Taranis?
2: um well i was playing with a couple of mates under a different name um one guy went off to uh uni um and at the time we, you're always looking for better musicians to play with as well you know you want to sort of make the best band you can um so we came across uh martin who's um the drummer um And he was more into, like, the thrash sort of side of heavy that we were doing. Um, So he agreed to come on board. Um, And we'd already got our lead guitarist. Um, And then it was in um, close to the end of the year, we got the bass player, who was an old friend of mine when I went to college. Um, But he was from Ipswich, so... It was a bit of a trek for him, but he agreed to join. Um, and uh, and then we, I believe it was him from Ipswich, Mark, his name was, um, who suggested going into the studio because we went into the Hayloft Studio in Ipswich. Um, and that was sort of Christmas time. Uh, and then we had our first gig in January, so we had sort of a product ready. To, you know try and sell at the gigs that's
0: quite a strategic move yeah
2: <laughs>
0: it's interesting going into the studio prior to doing to playing any shows at all were you doing lots of rehearsal
2: yeah we were practicing three times a week oh wow yeah well in those days it was uh quite cheap we used to practice at livermere village hall um which is just near very st edmunds and uh it's quite a good place, actually, because it was the village was built about half a mile outside the village. So we could just crank it up. And yeah, nobody right. would be uh, annoyed about it. Um, yeah, so we'd sort of re- written a few songs in that um, short period before we went into the studio. And, uh, yeah, we just recorded what we had, which was four songs.
1: And how did, how did you come into music? Had you been in bands before that?
2: Um, I think I saw Iron Maiden on Top of the Pops. And I thought, oh, you know, that's, that's the sort of music for me. Um, and uh, so I was about 14, 15, desperately wanted to be in a band from that age. You know, pestered my mum and dad for a guitar. Um, and uh, I think I took about six guitar lessons at the local music shop. Learn, learned bar bar black sheep i think <laughs> <laughs> and uh so yeah it was just trying to find the people um who was going to be able to make a band with you um,
0: those days when uh when top of the pops was on and and a band like iron maiden would come on it just used to i mean it just used to it was fantastic wasn't it it was such a well, brilliant moment there'd, there'd be all the kind of cheesy pop stuff that you'd yeah that you'd sit through and think oh, this yeah. doesn't mean anything to me yeah. and then maiden would come on or there'd be you know what yeah. another another bat like an alternative but like the cult would come on or something yeah. or yeah. Yeah. whoever and it'd be, oh this is just incredible oh god and you'd yeah. sit up and take notice yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd
2: got my own vhs tape so every time i'd sit in front top of the pops with the record button ready and uh Black lace would be on and all that sort of rubbish. <laughs> and then suddenly Iron Maiden would be there. So I'll quick record it so I could re watch it. You know, yeah, you, and it just felt different, didn't it? You think how yeah. things have changed, where if you want to watch something, all you've got to do is turn on your phone and bang, it's there. Yeah.
0: But the need for, for, a, for a music show like Top of the Pops now, I think, is greater than ever. Yeah, filtering some of that stuff out and pre- presenting some giving bands an opportunity to get on, there's nothing, TV on and get noticed.
2: there's nothing on terrestrial tv at all is there i think no mtv is on sky is it i'm not sure
0: yeah i mean Jules holland is, is is that's about it isn't it
1: you had to have dedication back in the day as well didn't you because sometimes you'd have to sit through weeks of weeks of shows before you got oh, something god yeah that actually actually brought it to yeah. life yeah, and then
0: and then like Happy Mondays would come on, or or, or the Mission, yeah. or, or yeah. something. Or New Order, New Order was always a really good yeah. one because they refused to mime, so they would always play live and cause massive headaches for everybody yeah. by having to do you know, doing Blue Monday live yeah, right. with all of their kit. Uh, but it just yeah, always used to stand yeah. out.
1: So, so you've had your six lessons at the at the, the local music shop, and where do you go from there? What get what gets you inspired?
2: I assume I can remember have, having like a get together with the bass player, and I can't even remember. He must have had a uh, an advert up in the local music shop or something, you know. Wanted bass player wants to join a band, so I remember having a little jam with a couple of different people, but it didn't obviously feel right because we never really kept in touch. And then, uh, as I say, I was in this first band which was called valhalla slightly cheesy but <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i got a guy who i went to school with um he was on the bass and uh um pete his name was uh, and we were with then I, I started to get friendly with some uh, local biker guys and uh and that one of those people was a, a drummer so then it's like, oh, can I come and watch you practice? So went along to see him practice, and that's when I um, uh, met a guy called Stewie who was on drums, and uh, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, we should do something together, and and finally the three of us sort of got together with this Valhalla, and then we sort of did a few cover versions. I think I think we did uh, Prowler by Iron Maiden, probably. Seek and Destroy by Metallica, a couple of things like that. Um, And then from then on, uh, Pete went off to uni um, and then started looking for other musicians because I was the only guitarist and and I was singing, but it was only because nobody else wanted to. (laughs) So I had to get myself a microphone and I was like, well, yeah, I don't care, I'll give it a go.
0: See, I love I love those sorts of stories where um, where you have those formative jam sessions with with the first time you get together with other like minded musicians. And quite often you hear people talk about that stuff and say, yeah, we you know, we did we did such and such and you move through it really quickly. You move through that recollection really quickly. But actually. Those moments are the moments where you're getting mainlined that feeling of playing with other people for the very first yeah. time—that's the moment where you ain't turning back from yeah, that. Yeah. You know, that's the that, uh, and I and I can still remember those moments, absolutely crystal clear. That first time where you hear other people's noise joining in with your noise and it making sense—that's it goes right into your, your
2: your DNA, doesn't it? Well, before that, you're just sitting on your bed with the guitar on your lap, and you know when you get together in a in a hall and to start getting your brain engaged, you know, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah.
1: And do you remember your sort of, what's your sort of songwriting like at that stage? Are you writing on your own or are you writing all together?
2: Uh, I can't, I can't even remember trying to make up riffs in those days. It was just, let's play some heavy metal. <laughs> so, you know, what do you like? Iron Maiden, Metallica, stuff like that. Dio, I think we, we you learnt riffs. And it was very infrequent that you actually learn much more than that. Cool. And when you actually learn a full song, yeah, you know, that's when things come together, like you say. Yeah. So then we had um, Dave, who's the lead guitarist of Taranis. Um, He turned up because I'd been advertising for other musicians. Um, so, you know, I was always um, a fan of Judas Priest and, stuff like that. with and I made Maiden with the two guitarists mm. and cause it get, I felt like it made it a fuller sound. So I always wanted that second guitarist and it was always, I was never a lead guitarist. I was more of a singer rhythm and, uh, and Dave came along and he'd been to music school and it was just jaw dropping for first practice. He came along, you know, thrashed it out, did loads of licks and lead guitar and stuff. And it's like, "Uh, I think you're in. (laughs) He He said, I couldn't believe you. You just let me in on the first day like that. But yeah, he was fantastic. I I don't know. You've obviously listened to the the song that we're going to play later. And uh, the lead guitaring it's like world class.
1: There's something about having a musician like that to play with that makes you raise your game as well doesn't there
2: it does yeah yeah I I I think I was probably the weakest link in the band <laughs> but you know you just do your best don't you
0: so you were playing guitar alongside him
2: yeah I was mostly rhythm I did a little bit of lead here and there but
0: how much did that move your playing along you know being alongside someone
2: who, who you thought of that highly yeah um, I think just being so obsessed with it, um, listening to the new thrash bands coming out and just wanting to emulate them all the time, I think, and practicing so regularly, you put a lot of hours in, and yeah, you just gradually get better and better
0: so just going just going back a little bit to the to the, the that first recording session um you'd done four months of um of rehearsal and then you decide to go go yeah. in the studio how what was that what was that like to, uh, uh, going in and and what was that session yeah. like how did it well, play out for I you
2: remember going in and um i don't know if you've heard of the hayloft before no it was the it was a recording studio in ipswich and uh, everybody seemed to use it and uh I think it was a band um annihilated i think they used it they were quite an early big thrash band from out um and uh i think the uh guys from cradler filth before Cradle of filth used it as well okay um so anyway we went in there and he has got a mixing desk in the like the loft room and then the recording rooms downstairs and um yeah, it was it was quite overwhelming, really, because I'd never been in that type of environment before. Didn't know what to expect. I remember he had to re- he recorded on VHS tapes. It was like a DAT, but it was like a, a, a do-it-yourself type of DAT system that he built.
0: Wow! But it worked,
2: and he could you know he could record the separate tracks. I don't know how many he had. It's probably only about sixteen tracks or something, but. And then I remember we, because you, when you sit in a, a recording studio with the nice speakers and you're listening to it constantly for two or three days, and it's like, oh, this sounds so good. And I can remember we came out of there and we said, if we don't get a record deal from this, just, you know, that's just not right. And then, you know. After a few months, you realise, yeah, no, I don't think we will be getting a record deal from this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that is how you should be oh. feeling, isn't it? When you come out, you should be feeling. You come way. out
2: elated, completely elated when you finish. Yeah, and it sounds so good.
1: <laughs> what, what, were you, what were your aspirations going
2: into the session, Jason? I, you know, I was like nineteen at the time. Just, I didn't really have any. I just, it was just to be there and to have the band and just making something, you know, hadn't you know, it would be nice to think, oh yeah, we could like send it to the record companies and make it big, but, you know, very few are far between, isn't it? People who, uh, oh, yeah,
0: that's the truth of it. Yeah. I guess yeah. the, uh, the, um, the doing of it, as you said, for that first one and having those demos, Uh, those recordings available to people when you're playing shows. Did you send it out to anyone or did you just keep it for selling gigs?
2: Yeah. Yeah. We we sent it out to um, loads of different record companies. Okay. I can't, I can't remember. I think the demo that we're going to play today, I think that was the one we sent out most. Um, And we got loads of rejection letters. (laughs) (laughs) They were all very nice. Yeah. They were all very polite, and they all rejected this. Never mind. <laughs> how did you choose who to send it to? I think it was just all the um, the record labels of the bands that we listened to on vinyl. Um, you know, you've, in those days, how did you find the re- the addresses? Um, the yellow pages, Pref you know the back the back of the uh, um, the album covers and Kerrang! magazine, things like that and uh yeah we sent them off to places like music for nations mm. um that's when i can remember did you did you
1: package it up as a demo did you do some artwork for it some liner notes did you go down that road with it
2: uh yeah yeah well at the time i worked in a um like a uh, a repro house for printing handy so so i was doing like a bit of design work and stuff and I've been to art college um, and our bass player Mark he we both went to the art college in Ipswich together uh, so yeah I did a, I did like a design a character for the front um, and yeah put it together but well not at work but put it together with the techniques that I learned and got it printed um, I think there's a little printer across the road um, and they printed it properly. So, uh, and it was all obviously cassettes in those days. Yeah. Do you yeah. still have them? Do you still have any? I think I've got one. Yeah. Um. In the loft. <laughs>
1: you send the demos out and you get a, yeah. a, a heap of rejection letters. What does yeah. that do for the band? What What happens from that point?
2: Well, it didn't really affect the band in those days. Um because really, you know, a year in, we'd only just started. Um, and I think eventually, two or three years in, people started to, you know, oh, it's not really going anywhere and uh, wanted to do other things. Um, and Obviously, that's when the band sort of pitters pit out a little bit, isn't it? Um, yeah, Martin, the drummer, went off to a band called The Odyssey. Um, they were um, like a death metal band from Ipswich because he was into the more heavy stuff. Um, yeah. So, But while the band was going, um, yeah, we were all seemed to be really keen and really into it. Um, and like you say, we were always trying to get new gigs. Um, trying to find different places to play, and again, that's looking in the Kerrang! magazine. They always had the gig guide, mm. so you'd look. Oh, where where can we play in Norwich? Where can we play in Ipswich? Where can we play in Colchester? Um, and I think we played Lowestoft a couple of times as well.
0: Surely, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. We. <laughs> I don't know how. I think there was a lady who was like a bit of a promoter, doing the heavy stuff in Lostoft. Yeah. Um, she probably contacted us, um, yeah, and we did a couple of gigs. We played in a nightclub upstairs, yeah, right near the seafront somewhere. Yep, and was a exactly bar way, yeah. underneath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we and we got to take our Marshall stacks up the staircase. It was a horrible
0: loading. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <good>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That that club had many different names. It was it was one of those it had a, a few different names. But yeah, no, I remember, yeah. I remember it well. They, they obviously
2: had, had the rock night, yeah. They yeah. did,
0: they did, yeah. So, so we played
2: there with a couple of other bands, and that, we actually got a review in Kerrang! Um, for that gig. Now tell so us about a, that, how, did, yeah. how was that? Well, there's a journalist called uh, Jason Arnop. He literally just turned up, had, took a review, and published it in the magazine.
1: What was the review like, Jason? Do you, have you got a copy of it? Do you remember what it said?
2: I, I, uh, not really. I remember he um, he likened me to the singer, the uh, front man of the band called Death. But our music's just nothing like it. Oh. <laughs> I think it was because I've, I had this black spiky guitar. I had this Jackson Warrior. Oh, yeah. Do you know Jackson Warrior? Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, Yeah, I think that's the reason why he thought I looked a bit like the singer of uh, Death. So
1: did you know the review was going to be in there or did you pick up a copy of Kerrang! and open it and there's the review?
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We used to buy Kerrang! every week and uh, yeah, you'd always just go through it and it's like, wow, (laughs) it's us, you know. (laughs) And uh, we'd sent our demo off and they used to have a demo page as well. So we'd been in there. Just a small like paragraph demo review. So we were in Korean a couple of times, which was quite nice. That's great. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. what was the the rest of the the scene like then? You were getting to play a few places, and I guess sharing bills with other bands, and were, were other bands sort of yeah. were, were bands supportive of one another?
2: Well, you just start to um, make new friends, don't you? And from one gig, you you get another gig, and and stuff like that, and then you try and get the bands back to your town, and then this bit of gig share thing goes on. But, yeah, when we first started playing Ipswich, um, we played with uh, um, friends called Channel Legion, um, and I think we played with another band called Sniper, who were actually from Leicester. Mm-hmm. But, again, they were, like, connected. They had friends in this area, so... Um, then we started doing a few gigs in Norwich. Um, we went to uh, the Brickmakers. Mm. Um, did band competition first, I think. Um, met Errol, who uh, he was in a band called Sweet and Innocent, and uh, he's quite prolific doing his rock stuff in uh, Norwich, mm. even to, even today. So uh, I think he's he heard a Bloodstock Festival.
0: Uh, I haven't, no.
2: No, that's like a very heavy festival from Derbyshire. Um, And they do a thing called Metal to the Masses, or they used to before the lockdown. And it's literally local bands, band competition, and the winner gets a slot at the festival. Uh Um, And they do 50 towns in England or something. So you've got a new band stage just from this competition. Wow. So... uh, And that's what Errol does. So we uh, played at the Brickmakers, we played at the Festival House in Norwich. Um, Again, it's like suggestions, you know, we meet these new people and they say, oh, you know, you'll have to play here. You know, we all go down that pub, so you'll have to come and play at this other pub. Um, And then one called The Oval opened up. Uh I think that was early nineties. And that was run by a guy who used to be in the Iron Maiden crew one of the uh, um, the people behind the scenes, I believe. And then he went off to do this pub. But it was a real, it was a music venue, really. And uh, it was just all about rock. And it was fantastic. And uh, they had Iron Maiden play there under a false name. Did they? So it was like a secret gig. <laughs> um, and who else? Uh, we supported a band called Zentrix there. Uh-huh who was uh, quite a famous thrush band in those days. Um, and we also played with Zentrix at the Waterfront. Um, and we played with Zentrix again at the Colchester Hippodrome.
1: So what were, what were those shows like?
2: Oh, they were fantastic. The Waterfront, you know, it's packed, huh. jam-packed. And that was a, f- you know, we weren't, we were still quite a new band. Um, but... Uh, yeah, fantastic. I think I said um, something about "Come on, everybody, let's uh, do a bit of stage diving," and then I got told off afterwards because that wasn't allowed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jason, do you re- do you remember what it felt like stepping out in front of a full audience? Then what what, what was that like for you?
2: Oh, oh, well, I think you're concentrating on what you you have to do. You know, you're thinking about your songs, and when you're on stage. The lights are so in your eyes you can't really see much anyway and and really we always played for ourselves we didn't really you know we always peppered the set with a couple of covers that people would love and people would know and uh, but really we just played because we enjoyed it and you know in those days it was just like hundred percent energy straight away it was brilliant. How important to
0: to you was it then i mean you you said you, you were you'd been in college and then you were, you were working. how important was the was being creative and playing music to you at that point
2: well yeah, I suppose that's the um escape isn't it from normal life you know you uh I've got this sort of creative passion inside me i suppose so uh, to put it into songs yeah it's really good. In terms of the
1: the support you said, this, the metal scene was quite supportive. Is it was it not, not not knowing much about thrash? Is it just a thrash scene, or are uh, is it thrash bands, hardcore bands, death metal bands? Is it a very broad church, or is it very specific? That, the people you're yeah. hanging out with and meeting up well, with.
2: Well, I suppose in those days, it was most things were called sort of thrash. Really, for for that type of heavy scene. Um, If it wasn't thrash, it was, even the alternative stuff, it was just too normal for us. (laughs) But, you know, we did love bands like The Cult and uh, especially like Electric, you know, it had a proper ACDC sound to it. Um, But yeah, you're you're always sort of getting it um, wrapped up in the new bands coming out, so. You know, somebody would come to practice and say, oh, have you heard this new band, um, Death Angel? Fantastic. So that gives you a bit more, you know, I suppose we were trying to emulate bands like that. So,
0: You talked about, you know, working quite hard, rehearsing um, three times a week when you were starting out. Do you feel like you tried as hard as you wanted to, to try and make something happen for for the
2: band? Um Yeah, we never went down the road of getting a manager. That's probably, we may have got further if we'd have done something like that. What difference do you think that would have made? Well, I don't know. You hear about these bands and they've always got managers, haven't they? Mm. And I think, well, they take away the, uh, you know, the boring stuff, I suppose. Perhaps they've got a bit more boldness when it comes to talking to people in the industry. I don't know.
1: How how motivated were you uh, as a band to kind of get to get to places, to get stuff done? And, and how were were you the kind of sort of central focus? Was it reliant upon you to make stuff happen?
2: Um, I think I organised most of the gigs, bar one or two. Um, yeah. And in those days, I, uh, it, well, yeah, I was living at my mum and dad's at first. Later on, got my own home and then I used to use the uh, telephone box down the road because we didn't have a phone (laughs) (laughs) it was you go down the telephone box with your notepad and try and organize some gigs
0: and a bag full Uh, of a bag of 10p's yeah yeah yeah,
2: you know it's just uh uh, normal life isn't it that's normal life gets in the way sometimes it seems
0: unimaginable doesn't it that that's what we used to do yeah, down yeah, to the phone totally, box. Totally. <laughs> yeah.
2: So yeah, I think we were. I think no, I think we were quite um, sort of dedicated to it, but not dedicated enough to push it to the next level.
0: Do you regret that, or are you are you comfortable well, with how
2: hard you worked? No, I, I think I was comfortable with it. Um, looking back, the music probably wasn't good enough for a professional band. That's wow. an interesting
0: thing to admit, isn't it? That uh, To yeah. admit to yourself, you know, because you, cause you yeah. dedicate so much time to it.
2: Yeah. But then, you know, it was my passion and it still is. You know, I'm still in a band today, so uh, still writing new material.
1: When you take time to go back and listen to those old Taranis recordings, how do you
2: reflect on them now? Um, I think I'm pretty proud of them. Yeah, there was some really good bits in there. It may not be as cohesive as, you know, some bands. Uh, I don't really know how it connected with people. I've, I have bumped into people in the last 10 years who have said, oh, I played that tape to death. Huh. It was fantastic. You know, and oh, was it you in that band? So it's actually quite nice still to sort of be remembered for it.
0: Yeah, so you ended up on a compilation as well, right?
2: Yes, um, got a message through on the email. Um, Somebody had suggested us. I think um, somebody on Facebook put out a message. uh, Can people please suggest um, underground bands uh, from the thrash genre um, who didn't quite make it because somebody wanted to write a book. It was um, a guy called Ian Glasper. I think he'd written a punk sort of biography before and stuff like that. Um, he's been in many bands as well. I think he's a bass player. He was in a band called Stamping Ground. Um, but I think journalism's his sort of day job. Yeah, we've got a um, pretty much a chapter. But yeah, again, you know, 30 years later, somebody's wants to put you're in a book I'm like wow
1: <laughs> are you still in touch with the with the other guys
2: from the band uh yes um two of them still live locally um one of the the dave the guitarist has moved out to essex um but yeah we still message every so often and uh yeah martin the drummer's a mechanic so i always take the car to him
0: <laughs> oh, so you sp- you parted on good
2: terms then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> how did the how got... did
0: the band come to an end?
2: Well, yeah, I think um, Martin went off and played with this other band, but he didn't actually leave us. Um, then Wayne, who was our bass player, the last bass player who was with us, he was he was with us for from about two and a half years, so he was the longest bass player. Um, he was, he thought he might get a job in London, so he left the band for that, I, thought, I think happened. Um, I think he may have got uh, wrapped up with another covers band in the town. Um, and then, yeah, Dave the guitarist, I think he moved to Ipswich, which then made it a little bit more difficult to practice and yeah it just sort of petered out in the end
1: how did that leave you feeling jason
2: um yeah it was pretty uh i didn't really like it at the time but uh you know because you put so much energy for like three or four years into something um but yeah it's just the way things go you know and you look for the next thing afterwards i think i I joined a, a covers band for five minutes <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, nothing really happened for a year or so. Um, and then uh, I got a call and somebody said, uh, oh, we're thinking about putting a um, a Metallica tribute band together. Do you fancy doing it? So that's what we did. And we, we basically got back together and started up a Metallica tribute band uh, the only difference was uh, dave the guitarist didn't come back so we we found a new guitarist but
0: it's almost the same line up
2: yeah it was uh, uh, me martin on drums wayne on bass <laughs> um and we got another guy tony on guitar to make you know the four members of metallica <laughs> so and, no uh,
0: because tribute bands have to have a kind of pun Name or version of the what was what was your Metallica tribute band called? Well,
2: Metallica do have a song called "Sad but True," Mm -hmm. so that is what we called ourselves "Sad but True." (laughs) Nice, (laughs) that's That's great. Yeah,
0: so (laughs) we had the
2: we had the uh, Metallica style logo as well. Excellent, brilliant. (laughs) And we did that for about ten years. Did you introduce
0: yourself as James Hetfield when you were? Were you did you sort of? Were you quite method with when you were doing it?
2: Yeah, I didn't. Not really. No, we did, we just called our own names, but uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, we didn't stand up on stage introducing ourselves. I don't think. We well, just... the
0: only reason I ask is a, a friend of mine played with a, a was supporting a Green Day covers band, yeah. and the singer in the dressing room said, "Hello, how you doing? I'm Billy Joe," and introduced himself as Billy Joe. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, no, not quite that bad.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we just got up there again. We got up there, we were all Metallica fans. Yeah. And we just loved playing the cover versions. And, uh, you know, we we did a two hour set. I'm a bit jealous of that. That sounds like great fun. And the room was always packed Mm. and full of people who wanted to hear it. So, uh, yeah, we played all over the place with uh, Saddle Drew, Um, Milton Keynes, uh, Peterborough london yeah what do you think it is about the
0: the tribute band circuit that i mean because it's huge isn't it it's a huge industry that yeah. nostalgia tribute band thing what do you think it is about that well, that people that draws
2: people to it don't know really i think it's slightly cheesy <laughs> but when you got to when you actually do it yourself um we really enjoyed it um i remember at the time thinking you know, surely you could do like a a tribute festival, but there was nothing happening at the time and we weren't really in a position to organise it. But now they have got full tribute festivals, haven't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I should imagine, I mean, you're never, unless you're really, really lucky, you're never going to see Metallica in a pub, you know, in Norwich. (laughs) 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 But but if you get a good tribute band who, who nail those tunes... With, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and like you said, in, are enjoying doing it. Yeah, That's going to be quite good, isn't it? Because some of those yeah. tunes are
1: ruddy awesome.
2: Oh, God, Why yeah. not?
1: For a fiver, not 60 quid. <laughs> when, you, when you're when playing in the Metallica covers band, are you still writing alongside that, playing in, you know, writing your own music, or have you just dedicated um, yourself to that?
2: We started the Metallica band in about 97. And then in about 2004 i wanted to do some original stuff again so i did my own originals band at the same time um and then finally we had a couple of people to leave and then they couldn't get so many gigs and uh, and then the, the tribute band finished but i'd already got my other band going so we sort of carried the other band on for a little while
0: yeah feel good to be doing uh original stuff again
2: well, the reason I did it was uh, I went to Leeds Festival in two thousand and three, uh, and a few of us wangled our way backstage, and that was a Metallica year. So we got to the Metallica compound and met Lars Ulrich, the drummer. Excellent. And uh, and I was thinking, you know, you hear, you listen to interviews with these bands, and they're always like, "Yeah, follow your dream," and you know, do what you want to do. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm just copying you. (laughs) (laughs) I think perhaps I should do my own thing again. And that's sort of the reason why I wanted to start writing songs. So since there, since 2004, just been constantly writing new songs.
0: So it's still a really important thing for you. Oh, yeah. Tell us about your new band. What's your new band called?
2: Um, We're called Obsessor um which is uh it's this, i think it's spanish for possessed in in exorcisms in in spain the word obsessor when i researched it um comes up i thought yeah searched for the name no other band seemed to be called obsessor like wow we found a unique name no other band has called it as far as i can tell so uh and it's and it's easy to uh find out these days isn't it Well, on the internet if if another band has called it in the old days you'd you'd oh there's another band in america called that name and stuff like that i think tar- i think there's in if on the internet i think there's like something like 10 different taranis bands really yeah
0: well we had that didn't we ben in a band that we were in in london we were called reef originally this is I really, before Reeve, before really, Reef came right. along. <laughs> no, no, no. We we were uh, 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 just prior to them doing their Sony Mini Disc advert or whatever it was that got them famous. But the them I got a phone call one day to uh, <laughs> our, our house, and it was their manager. Saying, oh, we're just we've just signed this massive record deal and we're called Reef. But this promoter is saying that you've been playing as Reef and we've you've done a bunch of shows as Reef, and uh, we just want to know what, what we need to do to, to get the name. I said, You can have the name, I don't care. I know what an idiot, yeah. <laughs> what, an idiot. what
1: were you thinking? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, Ben, you were in the same band, it. were you? Well, yeah, I can't remember, I can't remember that moment. I wish I'd I had the phone call instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. <laughs> i thought i have it
0: oh really good luck to you hope it goes well have it we'll change it i don't care <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah, what a fool. well the thing is um i used to keep our, our demo tapes in a padded envelope not, uh, unopened you know the old yeah. copyright thing yeah uh, yeah of course just in case somebody tried to nick our music or came up with something similar they never did <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i finally i think i finally went through it when i was doing the interview for the book and uh, thought right i'm gonna open it now <laughs> okay, crack the seal <laughs> yeah the moths and dust came out
0: <laughs> um what are your what ambitions do you have for your music now then jason
2: uh just to go out every wednesday night and have a laugh with the lads and do something constructive Rather than just sitting in a pub talking rubbish,
0: that's a, that's, a, that's yeah. a noble ambition, right?
2: Yeah, no, we get we, we are going to do some recording soon. We've booked a little studio near Thetford, mm-hmm. um, so we're going to do uh, some track proper tracks. Yeah, we've done loads of t- demos on GarageBand, but it'd be nice to have a decent sound. And then, Why? Again,
1: what's the what's the motivation for going and recording? Why do you want to do that?
2: the process of recording more than anything for me, I I love when you come out with the product. And like I said earlier, you got that elated feeling of, wow, this is something that sounds really great. You know, it's like a bit of history as well, isn't it? Mm. Once it's there, it's set in stone and you always look back on it like we are now.
0: Thank you so much for doing this, Jason. It's been a real privilege to talk to you and and thank you for taking time to share your memories of, Um, uh, of Taranis could you just finish off by introducing the song that we're going to hear now
2: please yeah so the next song is Taranis off the demo Eternal Life and the track is Reoccurring Existence cheers Jason thanks Jason cheers